Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, we, we have a lovely guest uh, this day, this fine July 3rd. Uh, happy July 4th to all of you as well. Um, Judy Kaiser will be uh, joining us momentarily. Um, and she has a fun story for, for how uh, the two of us met. And it, it's, I'm going to leave it to her to, uh, to tell the story uh, whenever she gets here. Um, you know, I, I, I've hardly ever done a podcast where – I, I'm just speaking on my own. And the, the only other time that I did it, I, I remember uh, it was the third time we had Larry King on. And uh, I forget exactly what episode number it is, but it was about 28 minutes that I was just talking. And I didn't know what to talk about. Uh, I, I, I believe I went down the rabbit hole of the fact that the Dodgers and the Cardinals may have been playing in the playoffs at the time. And uh, I brought up the the history of the uh, the 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 Dodger Cardinal rivalry, if you will. Um, and that's just like recollecting as as we wait for Judy, just of times that I, I've I've been here solo, which is really only one. Um, I, I, I I right now I'm focused very highly from a, a story perspective on the 1930s, 1937 to 1941. That is what I'm aiming for the first season to be of the Dodger arc. But of course you can't just fill the entire thing with what was going on with the Dodgers at the time, 1937 to 1941 has so many different themes that deal with, with America at large and with everything going on out there, right now one of the the biggest reasons that i i'm i've always been interested in this is the fact that it is i believe and i'll reiterate this i'm sure i've mentioned it before but 1937 to 1937 to 1957 is the most important 20-year period in modern american history and everything that's going on right now every facet of who we are as a country can all be told from that 20-year period and also told from the corner of the world that is Bedford and Sullivan in the story of Brooklyn and its Dodgers. And, and somebody who can help us tell that story, and I'm very thankful to, to welcome her to the show, and that is Ju- Judy uh, Kaiser. And just I wanted to make sure I've talked with your son. I'm pronouncing your, I'm pronouncing your uh, last name correctly, right? Kaiser, as in Kaiser Aluminum, Kaiser. but I'm not related. Excellent. <laughs> well, well and, and that's what we want to uncover is who you are related to, if not Kaiser Aluminum. So, so Judy, first of all, thank you for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Happy 4th of July to you and your family. And the first thing that I want you to tell the audience 
is how you and I met. <laughs> this is something that very few people believe. Even I, who was part of it, have trouble believing it. I was driving down, I believe, Park Avenue, going from the east side to get to the west side, to come home from the city, back up to Hastings-on-Hudson, where I live, and a white, unmarked van pulled up to my left, and the gentleman in the van is waving and tooting, and I had my close friend Barbara with me, and neither one of us could figure out exactly what he was trying to say, and so we just proceeded along our way. Um, we then crossed Central Park, and he obviously crossed Central Park as well. The next time we saw him, he pulled up to our right on 79th Street, just before the entrance to the West Side Highway, and again was motioning, and we opened the window, and he yelled across and said, quote, I love your license plate. Now, my license plate, thanks to my son, is a special plate that has the B for Brooklyn Dodgers on it, contrary to the fact that most people in New York think it's Boston, and that is absolutely wrong. At that point, he yelled back and said, please get in touch with me, and said what his, um, the Sullivan and Broadway website. And so it all went from there. And Sam, beyond that point, it was all you're doing. <laughs> I, it's just, it's, what, what I love about it is I don't think that I was all the way on Park Avenue, but it, it's so interesting the way stories go and the drama that you build up with it. <laughs> and that's, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you understand so well <laughs> what I'm trying to go for. So, so, so go ahead before I ask you the next question. No, no. Uh, as I say, maybe it wasn't Park. That was probably either our third or fourth round trip to Lenox Hill Hospital in two days. Um, to take oh, to and see my friend. So while I may be off geographically by an okay? avenue or two. I'm sorry? She's doing, she's doing okay? He's fine. He's fine. Oh, he's Is fine. that the reason I'm a little late getting uh, on to you today was because they had taken me out to lunch and we came running back. <laughs> well, I, I hear that you're a little out of breath, so I want you to catch your breath. Um, you know, I, I was just telling the audience that, that I, I've hardly ever started a show where it's just myself, which, which is like the last time that I did that, Larry King, uh, uh, I, I just told the audience this, but Larry King couldn't call in for about 28 minutes. And I didn't know what to do with myself, but I, was talk I ended up talking about the Dodgers and the Cardinals. Everybody, it's the third episode out there of Larry King, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. What we're here to talk about is Well, should I Judy tell you Kaiser. that Larry King's – should I tell you, just parenthetically, Larry sure. King's first wife was a second cousin of mine. But let's oh, go from there. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, let's go from there. Yeah, no, we'll have to bring that up more. But let's start from the beginning, Judy. And your Brooklyn roots, your Brooklyn history, and how you came to have your son get you a license plate with the Dodger mark on it. Well, my son knew um, from probably his entire life um, that I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And prior to his accidental death, um, when Lee was eight years old, uh, my late husband Jake was a, also a, an avid 
Brooklyn Dodger fan. Um, I did know that Jake had, because I saw it, a baseball that had been autographed by all of either the 51 or 52 Dodgers, and my son cherishes that to this day. What I did not know that my son also had from my late husband was a scrapbook of all the clippings for the Brooklyn Dodgers. I don't know if it was just 1951 or 51 and 52, because I have not yet seen that scrapbook. And so I was in love with the Dodgers growing up because we lived in Brooklyn. And basically, if you lived in Brooklyn, you sort of kind of had to be a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And I followed everybody else and never regretted it for a moment because certainly back then, every single member of the Brooklyn Dodgers team was a superhero to me. Uh, when you start with Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella and Gil Hodges and just go on and on and on, um, you couldn't be anything but a Brooklyn Dodger fan. So that's how the love started. Yeah. And as I say, my son picked that up from me and from his dad. So outside of the Dodger love, Tell us about your Brooklyn roots. Uh, give us a little background of, of your life. Well, it was very dull, really. Um, I was born and lived until I moved out to get married um, on Avenue I and Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, which was two blocks away from PS 152, where I went, and one and a half blocks away from Midwood High School, where I proudly went, and one block away from Brooklyn College, where I also went. So it was a rather sheltered <laughs> life, um, but a very good one growing up with family all around me and wonderful friends and always fun things to do, which included when I was old enough, which was, I guess, when I was about 11, uh, and friends and I could get on the subway or the bus and go to Ebbets Field. That was probably the first place I was allowed to go with friends without uh, parental uh, chaperones. So what, what did you remember about your first time at Ebbets Field? Can you give us, and, and if you can, go all the way back to the morning that you woke up. Uh, uh, whatever you can remember about the day and the story of getting to Ebbets Field, by all means. Um, I don't remember the day or the morning. I do remember that I the person I went with that day was the sister of somebody who at that time was my older brother's girlfriend. And the girlfriend was named Babette, and her sister Carol was also a, an avid Brooklyn Dodger fan, and it was the two of us who went to Ebbets Field, and I remember watching the Dodgers live and in person, and being awed by it. And I remember getting, buying a hot dog, and I am now trying to think of, and I can't think of one of the very famous uh, vendors who sold hot dogs and popcorn at, at the Ebbets Field at that time. 
I'm sure that 10 minutes after we hang up, I will remember his name. But <laughs> I remember seeing Jackie Robinson and Campanella and Ralph Branca and Pee Wee Reese. Um, and up till that point, these had just been names and maybe sometimes photographs in newspapers. And I will say, at the age of 11, I wasn't much into the newspapers, except the World Telegram and Sun, which probably went mm. out of existence 60 years ago. Uh, or and the World Telegram, combined, so that, that was two papers. Now, the it World, world and the Telegram. And, and then the Sun, and then it became the World Telegram and Sun. Um, and what, and what's, what's incredible about it is, too, I think the World and the Telegram had to merge. They, they used to be two separate papers. Exactly, exactly. There were more papers. And, of course, back then, we had the Brooklyn Eagle. And I do right. believe yes. the Brooklyn Eagle is in existence in some form right now. I thought somebody told yes. me that. Um, I think they're weekly from a publication's print standpoint, but I, they, they, they do have a daily – they do write daily, ah, I believe. Ah, I will have yeah. to uh, look into that. But well, it's, it's, my, so here's uh, – uh, go, go ahead, Judy. Go ahead. No, no. Um, but my fondest memories are literally of seeing all of these people. Duke Snyder and Billy Cox and Pee Wee Reese, um, mm. Andy Pascoe, uh, mm. and Clem Levine, and certainly Don Drysdale. And the funny thing, that was later, but the funny thing about with John, Don Drysdale is when my son surprised me one year for my birthday with the special license plate with the Brooklyn Dodger B., the rest of the license, the license plate itself, starts with two letters, D D, and so it didn't take me a nanosecond after seeing the Brooklyn Dodger B to say, oh, and that's Don Drysdale. <laughs> I am sure that that was not what whoever made the license plate had in my mind, but to me it all connected very quickly. Uh, and I, to this day, I get annoyed when somebody will see me, see my car and make a comment about Boston. And, and, and you're really saying this happens in New York. Me. You're saying this happens yes. in New York a lot. Oh, all over the place. And that's why when you first called across from car to car saying, I love your license plate, I believe one of my reactions to you was, you know, it's not Boston. Yes, and then I mentioned yeah. that I was. I think I think before I think the the way uh, we reacted to each other about that was that I immediately told you that I was writing a script about the Dodgers, and yeah. just to, because I knew that we were we were also waiting for a light, yes. <laughs> so yes, you know were. I knew that I had to do it fast. Uh, I was on the delivery, and I I I, 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 I and, and so I think you loved that I didn't once mention Boston. I absolutely did. Well, and I immediately and, went to the Dodgers. Yeah, and as we drove away, my friend who was with me has, is a, another Brooklyn native. We have been close friends since we were in junior high. 
and I won't say any more than that goes back a few years. Uh, well, well, we'll have to invite, uh, you know, we'll, I'm glad that we've uncovered this uh, uh, information, and then I, I will have to, we'll have to get her on here as well to talk some Brooklyn. Um, uh, your son just called in, but I accidentally hung up on him. Oh, <laughs> are you there? Hello? No, no, uh, he's about oh. to be. The, the, uh, um, the, ex, the mouse was hovering over the X accidentally, and I didn't know that he was here. So, oh. uh, Mr. Lee Kaiser, thank you so much for joining us. And before oh. you go on whatever tangent you want, first of all, I'm sorry for accidentally hanging up on you. Uh, before you go off of any tangent you, you want, I, I, I would love to just go back to your baseball beginnings, your personal uh, general beginnings. And how Brooklyn and the Dodgers came into your your consciousness, your your life. And, and you're talking to to me, Lee. Yes, he's yes, talking Lee. To you, Lee. Yes. Right. Welcome, Mr. Talk. Lee Kaiser. Yeah, no, I um, I, I think I was pretty much born into baseball. Um, I uh, at a very early age, some of my first memories of doing things with. Uh, with my dad was going to opening day of the New York Mets, um, you know, and, and subsequently came to learn that uh, as a result of the Br- Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, you know, causing so much heartache to, to those who love them by leaving and going to the West coast, uh, some turned to the New York Mets as the, <laughs> the default team uh, to follow. So I remember very early days of, of watching uh, Ed Cranepool and Jerry Grody and Tom Seaver, Tug McGraw, Bud Harrelson, Felix Mion, all those guys. Um, and, and that was my kind of introduction to baseball. And it just, I don't know, I remember walking out of the tunnel and seeing the field and my eyes must have just jumped out of my, my head. It's, it was just so magical to see these guys playing in such an awesome environment and, and coming from just playing in my backyard. Um, it was, it was fantastic. And then, you know, growing up with family who had roots in that geographic area, I came to learn about, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers and, um, there was some natural spark within me to kind of learn about them and, and, and read and research about them. And as my mother, uh, pointed out, I came across a absolutely phenomenal album that my dad created, uh, with newspaper clippings from teams throughout the fifties. Uh, and she also made mention of the baseball that I have from the 51-52 season. Um, and it's funny, I have said for many years, hopefully my family doesn't take this the wrong way, if, if there were a fire in my house, that ball would be the first thing I grab. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I can attest to the fact that he, that he said that, and I totally understand <laughs> it. As long as I wasn't well, in the house yeah, but... when the fire started. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, you know, this is one of the reasons. It's one of the reasons why I, I think the Sandlot is so such. It could be argued for being the best baseball film. Uh, and in the '90s, I was just watching Rookie of the Year last night. The '90s just w- was was incessant with their baseball films. They understood there was a market for that. Um, but like the Sandlot really captures the childhood fantasy of baseball and, and that ball, just thinking about the signed Babe Ruth ball and, and why that's the first thing you would grab. So Judy, here's my question for you. 
Are you as passionate today, other than the Brooklyn Dodgers, would you say you're as passionate for the game of baseball as you are for the Brooklyn Dodgers themselves? Lee, that's for you. Judy, you... No, 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 that was for you, Judy. Yes. Oh. Um, No. I did switch allegiance to the Mets uh, when they came into being... But a big part of the reason for that, as Lee has mentioned, was the fact that my husband at that, in fact, at that time, it was right after we started dating. Uh, one of our very first dates was a double header in the snow in the polo grounds, because that's where the wow. Mets started playing before Shea Stadium was built. And so I was sort of pushed into the whole Met aura from the very beginning, I do remember that both my friend Barbara, who I mentioned, and I um, both were told that we were taking off from work on the first opening day at Chase Stadium. And we did. (laughs) And I think she and I lasted about three innings in the stands, in the freezing cold, um, and then departed for our one of our VW Bugs, where we sat and put on new nail polish. So, <laughs> I, I, I will give credit to her uh, as, as her interest in baseball dwindled, dwindled as a result of the, the Dodgers breaking her heart. Um, she, she would play along and come to baseball games as I was growing up. And the good thing about her coming was it guaranteed extra innings. Uh, in some way, despite <laughs> her, we would always have these marathon games whenever she showed up. And in fact, I remember one, one that went, one I remember one that went 21 innings. Car, 21 innings. Oh, yeah, it, uh, it, was, it was towards the end of Rusty Staub's career. Um, and oh, I, I'm pretty confident that there was a long period of time that she spent in the car doing her nails. Yeah. I probably did at that one as well. The one thing that I would like to mention, sort of going off track here, was in regard to Gil Hodges. When I went to junior high, which was out of that little orbit that I basically lived in, and that was Far away, that I was on Avenue Y, the new junior high was on Avenue K and Nostrand Avenue. At that time, Gil Hodges lived uh, in a small brick house on East 31st Street between Avenues K and L. And in the off-season, there could be perhaps 30 kids at lunchtime sitting out on his front stoop eating their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And more often than not, if he was home, Gil Hodges would come out and just stand there and chat with us. See, and that's and, the time. It's, it's, it's a shame that I just can't see that happening today. Um, it, it, that, that, to me, just gives the sense of how much of a neighborhood team the Dodgers were. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, 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 no. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think that's where you know, even though they're like, I've had conversations with ball players, and, and Ed Cranepole, you mentioned Ed Cranepole, 
uh, Lee. He's one of the most personable yeah. ball players I've ever met. And um, but but so and this is what I was leading to with that question, Judy, is that yeah. I kind of had a feeling that. And especially that with what we're talking about right now in baseball has to do with trying to create generational fans. And I, I wondered, do you, I mean, it, it seems just from not only your perspective, but plenty of others, Judy, uh, that, and by all means, please answer. Uh, uh, it, it seems like baseball lost, and the, Dodger, the Dodgers, even though they gained a lot of baseball fans in Los Angeles, they lost an entire generation of people that were very much into baseball. And the way you talk about Billy Cox and Roy Campanella and Jackie Robinson, the, all these ballplayers, you, you can still hear the passion for what the Dodgers meant to Brooklyn and what the game of baseball meant to Brooklyn. It, it Absolutely, seems, and and uh, you you would agree with me that that they lost an entire generation of fans, especially in the New York Brooklyn area. Yes, and even though a good number of those fans, if not in the beginning, eventually did switch their allegiance to the Mets, um, and that was helped by the Mets winning the World Series in 1969, but. It was never the same feeling. Also, I was out of Brooklyn by that point. I was married and living in Manhattan. And while my husband was an avid baseball fan, um, there wasn't that same sense of community and neighborhood. Um, I was reading uh, someplace online the other day, as a result of all of this, more about Gil Hodges. And this was written in 2018. And it mentioned that his wife was still living, not in the house on 31st Street, but he had moved, as he became successful, to a magnificent house on the corner of Avenue L and Bedford Avenue. I can still picture that house. Um, I don't know that any kids mm. at that point. No, well, I, 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 I heard that. Uh, I'm, pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that she does still live over there. Right. Right, which is which is also incredible. It's one of very few neighborhoods in Brooklyn that really has not changed for better or for worse in all these years. Those houses, those houses down that way are magnificent. Oh, yeah. absolutely. You know, those houses these days are probably around two million dollars. I won't tell you how well, much oh, yeah, Gil yeah. Hodges paid for his. Well, and, and you mentioned <laughs> the money. Probably 17, 17 grand. With, uh, with your mention of the money, if I can circle back, when you went to that first game, you mentioned going to the game and getting a, a hot dog. Do you have any recollection of the cost of the ticket or the hot dog? Good question. I don't, but I don't think it could have. That the whole day, including, I don't know if we went by Subway or I have a vague recollection that the Coney Island Avenue trolley was still running. Hmm. And that perhaps for part of the trip we took that. I would say that the entire day cost less than $5. Yeah, it, and that includes amazing. transportation, ticket, and food. And, and what, what, if you don't my, if you, I'm sorry, Lee, uh, what year do you think that was? I don't think that's come up yet. Um, that had to have been 1951, 1952. 
Right. Okay. It started. Lee, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just gonna say I've, I've uh, uh, thoroughly enjoyed listening to uh, you know a multitude of podcasts that you have here, the episodes, and that's one of the aspects I find very interesting is there's so many historical references, uh, you know, of the price of things and, and how things have changed in the neighborhoods and transportation yeah. and technology, media. That, that's, you know, aside from the Dodgers aspect, the, the podcast is just this amazing trip through history, through, you know, first-hand people who were there. It, uh, it, it's just truly astonishing um, what you have, have brought up. And, and then to learn of your age, it really sparked to me how amazing it is that you're so infused in this. And, and I wondered where your interest for Brooklyn came hmm. from that inspired this whole effort. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's, I am just, <laughs> just a little too humble. The but, shoe is on the uh, other foot guys. <laughs> so phenomenal. Well, first of all, the thing is, is that when you bring that up, it makes me realize how much I haven't done. I haven't had a rock and roll historian on. I haven't had a music historian on outside of rock, the rock and roll, because when I'm talking 1937 to 1957, I haven't had a World War II historian on. There's a lot of places that we have yet to go with uncovering what the era was like. So I appreciate you also supercharging me even more in the fact oh, that, that that stuff is, has been neglected. And, and uh, in terms of my own, my mom is from Brooklyn. I mean, I have a memory of walking around Sheepshead Bay when I was three. I was crossing the street, probably around Coney Island Avenue, Avenue Z, because that's where I, I remember uh, the Carvel over there from when I was three years old, which still stands to this day because it was a freestanding building. Um, but my, my uh, Harry and Rose, my... Papa and and uh, uh, Grandma, um, and I remember we distinctly called him Papa Harry, but I'm pretty sure she was Grandma Rose. But I, I don't think she had anything uh, different from the the general Grandma type as he had Papa. But um, it, I remember the the it was the classic "Don't walk" sign before they changed it to the universal language, just of, of signals, as opposed, so it, it was reading English. So it was walk and don't walk. And we're in the middle of, I'm three years old. Three years old, I have this memory. And we're in the middle of the street. My, my grandma, as it's blinking, don't walk, it, it, uh, is crossing at full speed. And my, my grandfather, Papa Harry, behind her, is going, it says don't walk, Rose, it says don't walk. But even as a, but even as a three-year-old, I recognized that it was flashing don't walk. It wasn't, it didn't just say don't walk yet, it was only flashing. And it, it was like part of like the understanding of what all of that meant. Walk, it's going to say walk, but then it's going to warn you with a flashing don't walk. And that, anyway, so like that's how in, you know, in-depth Brooklyn my life goes back to um, is, is that Sheephead, Sheephead Bay apartment building before he unfortunately died in 91 and she moved down to Florida before die, uh, dying in 96. And we moved to Florida in 1991, but that's a whole other story. In terms of the Brooklyn thing, I, you know, I, I, when I moved to New York City, you can't help but tell uh, uh, that what baseball means to the entire town. And at the time, I moved in 1995. The Yankees won the World Series in 96. I became a Yankee fan, but my entire uh, uh, 
family, you know, my grandfather was a Giants fan uh, that I only knew uh, retroactive to, to his death. And my uncle grew up a Giants fan. Um, it's separate from my, my mother's side. My mother, my uncle, uh, who uh, was married to my sister, my mother's sister, Barbara, um, that whole side is Mets fans. And uh, my dad just kind of raised me when we got here. We got swept up with the Yankees, but I was always very in tune with all of baseball in New York. And then as I came of age, just realizing that I had more of a fascination with the National League side of things in New York, at least among the history. And that just kind of converted me to the Mets. And, and yeah, that's, that's the story. I, I, I certainly just went on a bit of a tangent there and, and, and really elaborated, but that's the story, Lee. That's well, it, fascinating. It, it, you honestly, just brought up two things, things that for I me. I enjoy about your podcast is that the tangents, uh, you know, I, I, episode 116, you had the gentleman on, and you all did get off into the music of the era, and, and I think you yeah. know, it's fantastic. Uh, what I was going to say, as both of you were talking, and it's all so fascinating, uh, a thought that just popped into my head was, in 1951, 1952, a chocolate egg cream cost seven cents. And, <laughs> wow. and wow. one of the long pretzel rods, which were sold out of a glass container, were two cents each. And... <laughs> And they were all sold at Mrs. Brody's candy store on Avenue I and Nostrand Avenue. Uh, and, and there you go. It, that goes back to Sam's earlier uh, episode where they were talking about candy stores and, and soda shops. And, you know, today we pay for air and rocks and water. Right. <laughs> Here you pay nine cents. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, when you look, we, we don't pay as much for long distance, though. So you got to look at it that way, too, right? Yeah, well, the cell phone yeah. plan all encompassing. <laughs> yeah, I think that <laughs> Exactly. I think that um Lee should probably mention where his baseball allegiance was for a good few years. Just yes. about uh, the time you were leaving for camp. Yeah, absolutely. I uh you know, it, it started out with the Mets by, you know, as it should by blood. Uh, you know, my daughters often ask, why are we living in Virginia? Why are we, you know, New York sports fans? And I said, because you have to be. <laughs> if, if, you're, if your parents are a New York sports fan, you are. Um, so I was a Mets fan by default. And I think after, you know, realizing how struggling an organization they were, and as a kid you want to be part of a winner. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But you've been well, right, man. That's the Dodger lore, right? <laughs> ironically, with that, I, I decided very distinctly who is one of the worst teams in baseball, and I'm going to follow them. And at that time, for whatever reason, I decided to jump on with the Chicago White Sox. Uh, Chet Lemon, one of my all-time favorite players, Harold Baines, you know, all the way back. Tom Seaver went there, uh, Colton Fisk. And I was a, a White Sox fan for about three or four years um, before it just became – it just, I had to become a Yankee fan. I mean, they, they were prevalent they were <laughs> geographically, you know, we could make it to the right field bleachers in 12 minutes and, and enjoy the game. And here's my thing though. And, and here's, here, sorry, sorry, Judy, but here's my thing though about it too. 
Um, and it's, oh, just, I just, I kind of, oh, right, right, right. even though you became a, a, a Yankee fan in the 80s when they were, quote unquote, the bad years, but even the bad years, they were like the winningest team in the 80s that didn't win a World Series. <laughs> oh, a- absolutely. And, and in fact, I started, I really started following the Yankees and I, I, very distinctly, I remember I was in my aunt's apartment in New York, in Brooklyn, and it was the Bucky Dent home run. And I watched it on a little black and white TV. And I was watching alone. All of my, you know, older family were out in the other room on the, you know, of course, plastic covered furniture. Um, and I, I the, the excitement, the energy that I had watching that home run by myself was just so exhilarating and so unique that it was really from that home run on that I became enthralled with the Yankees and, and followed them and, I would always go to bed listening to Phil Rizzuto, Bill White, Frank Messer, Fran Healy. Those were the voices that put me to bed. And, uh, you know, Sam, you and I had talked earlier. I still, uh, at random times throughout any day, I will drum up on the Internet or podcast uh, old broadcasts of the Yankees or the Dodgers, uh, Joe Garagiola, Red Barber, Vince Scully, any old broadcasters that I can listen to. I'd rather hear an old game with their voices than either watch it or watch a current game. I just, I love the voices of baseball. Lee, I have a question for you. Do you think that your switch from Chicago to the Yankees, was it influenced at all by the fact that you ended up going to camp in Massachusetts surrounded completely by Boston fans? Well, it certainly, it certainly didn't hurt that there were, I was immersed in, in a hotbed of Bostonians. Um, and and <laughs> luckily at that time, they had yet to actually turn the tide and, and uh, you know, dominate the sports scene as they are now. But, yeah, it was very much to defend New York and be, be prideful of New York. So uh, very much it was, yeah, let me, let me you know, jump here with uh, my allegiance to the Yankees, who geographically were my home team. But you're right, Sam. They were they were a very exciting team to watch in the '80s, uh, regardless of championships. And uh, still, so before we get back to Brooklyn and the era, uh, I'll finish with this: uh, the 1991 uh, team. I don't think Yankee fans or baseball fans, for that regard, understand what a crucial year that was for the Yankees, considering they that was the last time they lost 90 games, and how many times have the Yankees even you know, in their entire history, once they started winning World Series in 1923, how many times have the Yankees ever lost 90 games? So 1991, I would say, is, is probably a, a crucial year from Yankee history in that they'll probably never even come close to looking like that ever again. Well, we can only hope. I mean, they, I believe they finished about 70 and 90. They're, they're fifth place in the AL uh, East that year, and uh, it, it was it was brutal. We can only hope that they don't, you know, uh, repeat that, uh, you know. And, and it was. I just couldn't see it. I couldn't. I couldn't see them ever. I just who the Yankees are as a brand. I just can't. I could never see them intersecting with. Uh, I mean, you never know what could happen for sure. But they just seem to fill holes like it's nothing. Well, and and I would like to say that, but I also was hopeful in my lifetime that I would never see Boston win a championship. <laughs> three, you got three. They got three now. 
So Judy, yeah. let's go back to, to Brooklyn. Let's go back to Brooklyn and, and the era. So he was, you know, uh, Lee mentioned that we went on a, a music tangent the other day, and music's very important to me, especially when creating the atmosphere. So I was hoping that you could talk about your relationship with music, if, if any, uh, at the well, time, and what, some of your memories uh, of the era. Well, let me start by saying that I come from a musical family. That's A. B is I am totally tone deaf, could never, ever carry a tune, took piano lessons for years, which was, as I kept telling my parents, a total waste of money. But I had an uncle who graduated from NYU with a degree in accounting and ended up winning, I believe, three Academy Awards for his musical contributions to films like The Sound of Music and West Side Story, et cetera, et cetera. So my connection with music was peripheral because I had no talent, but I enjoyed the music and I particularly enjoyed classical music because that was my dad's love. And he had a wonderful LP collection. We listened all the time. Um, Deflator Mouse, at that time there was a recording, which I now have a copy of, in English. And you have a German opera, and it's really more an operetta, with a really adorable story. And to be able to hear that wonderful music and understand and actually sing along with the words... Uh, Lee will tell you, according to him, I sing in the key of M. And she, uh, <laughs> she, does she, she doesn't lie. And, yes, and every time <laughs> if we are together and I start to open my mouth and he thinks there is a possibility, I will attempt to sing. His hand is immediately clamped over my mouth. So, uh, <laughs> so music is not one of my strong things. I just did remember something. Nothing to do with baseball or music, but very clearly in my mind are two things. One is of driving down Ocean Parkway in the back of a great uncle's pickup truck down on VJ Day. And that sticks in my mm. mind. Um, wow. Yeah, there were just crowds and crowds. And while there weren't that many cars back in 44, 45, they were, seemed to all be out on Ocean Parkway that day. And the other one mm. that's very distinct was the big snowstorm, I believe it was 47, that totally closed the city. I walked out of our house, and you walked three steps down from the porch to the sidewalk, and I walked down the three steps. Fortunately, my brother was close to me because at the third step, I disappeared. That's how tall the snow was. And mm. I remember my dad taking my sled down five do blocks remember, to a do you grocery store. Do you remember whether that was before the 47th season or after the 47th season, meaning, meaning like January, February, or uh, November, uh, December? I want to say January, February, but don't quote me on that. I would have to dig okay. up some photographs. 
Um, hmm. But I remember my dad taking the sled, walking with difficulty to five blocks away to the grocery, coming home with a wooden crate filled with glass bottles of milk, and him then just shouting out in the middle of our street, hey, everybody, come on out. I bought milk for everyone. Um, and I, that, if, I can, uh, if I can interject, Sam, I believe it was, uh, it was uh, Christmas, uh, December, that the storm hit, uh, the 25th. So it was, so it was after, after the season. Okay. After. Just, yeah. you know, I always love to, to get, like, the full uh, arc of it all. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, it, you know, it's it's so fascinating talking about that era. Did you, you know, classical, like at the time that jazz was becoming humongous, it was still considered, um, you know, uh, uh, sophisticated to be listening to classical, if you will. And, you know, Walt Disney, even though it was not a big movie at the time, it, it didn't exactly uh, hit Snow White level of box office. But Fantasia is, of course, considered a, a masterpiece now. Uh, and that was made, I believe, in 1939, 1940. So classical has always been in the peripheral of, of the culture of America, one way or another. Um, yeah. and, and so, so I, and, and Lee, I, just in the music conversation, what, what, where do you fall in on it? Are you a big music fan? Well, I, I do. I love music. Absolutely. I, I don't think there's a time of the day or any day that I don't go without listening to music. It, it, my family will attest that it's always on. Um, but I, I will say to this day with the progression in technology as it relates to music, um, I still think because of early influences that there's no greater way to listen to classical or jazz than on an old LP on a record player. It's not compressed the way the digital format is. There's that crackle behind it that just, to me, adds to, to the mystique of the music. Um, so I do miss that old format for the classical and jazz. But I, I, I'm a huge music fan, and I love all different genres. I will uh, turn back to my mother, though, with astonishment that when you asked her about music, she did not mention her love of Harry Belafonte. Oh, of course. I apologize oh, yeah. for that. I guess it's, uh, you know, getting used to being on a podcast. But, yes, Harry Belafonte was the only performer that I ever did make a scrapbook for. I also had the good fortune, <laughs> there used to be a nightclub on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn, not too far before the Floyd Bennett Bridge, which is now the Gil Hodges Bridge. And it was um, Ben Maxick's something club. And Harry Belafonte appeared there once. And I don't remember how, but my dad managed to get tickets for a friend of mine and myself. He was also in a Broadway show. I believe it was called Three for Tonight. He was in it, and Marge and Gower Champion were in it. And I went to see that with my cousin, and my uncle, the one I referred to, who was in the business, had told me that he was very close friends with the champions, and he told me, he had told them that we were coming, and we should go to the stage door after the show, and we could meet Harry Belafonte. And I was just oh so excited and thrilled, and my cousin refused to do it with me. So uh, I lost a huge opportunity. Uh, 
and he's 93 and seems like he's going strong he's from uh he he was um he's jamaican american and, and he, he he's a fascinating figure in in not only music history but civil rights history and the way race I- interjected in music yes yep. absolutely. Yep, absolutely yeah and you With, still there... hear him once in a, not as often but once in a while these days i will either hear him or I will read a quote in the Times with him commenting on the current day situation. I just thought he was a brilliant musician, but also such an admirable person. Uh, Well, and and you you also didn't mind the way he looked. Oh, well, that's absolutely (laughs) for sure. And let me tell you, he's in his 90s now. I think he still looks pretty damn good. Oh boy, here we yeah. go. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> see some of these photos. I mean, he's 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 going strong. He he he's still as charismatic as ever. I mean, this is 2011 photo on on Wikipedia, but it, it you know it, it's still he's age 93, and, and uh, it uh, it's remarkable. You know, I talked to Carl Erskine, and he is just you know talks circles around me. Uh, I was just talking uh, a little while ago with, uh, uh, speaking of four, uh, 1962 Mets, Frank Thomas, little little uh, shameless oh, plug. Wow. I'm, try- I'm trying to work with getting Frank Thomas uh, interview on maybe this podcast, maybe another as well. But um, these guys just, you know, it, it's, for one thing, I think it's also about people constantly asking about the past and, and you're, you're constantly reliving it. And, and it is, you know, not to brush my shoulder off or pat pat myself on the back at all but what you were talking about with the podcast it's one of the beautiful things about this is these stories getting regurgitated in a proper form absolutely absolutely Absolutely. and And i'm a huge podcast listener i have a lot of trouble sleeping anytime and i have been I started listening. I'm sure you have never heard the name. I, names. I started listening to Barry Gray and Long John Neville when I was probably nine or ten years old. And they both had one was at midnight on WMCA radio, and the other one followed at 2 a.m. And I listened to them from that time. That was to me the that I think was the start of talk radio. And I think and, it was much better than it is now. <laughs> and and in terms of, of listening and circle back a little bit, were there other small and big venues throughout Brooklyn that you would go to for live music? And if so, who were some of the people that you listened to? Well, there was one called the uh, Cafe, called Cafe Elegante, which was also on Ocean Parkway, but close to Avenue K. Um, and Morty Gunty, who was a, a, a Midwood graduate and mainly a Borschtbelt comedian, although he did have some bits on, on TV. Um, but he would appear there, and we would go there to see him. Um, I have a vague recollection when I was much younger of going to see... Danny Kay, someplace in Brooklyn. But part of the reason for that was that he and my uncle, again, were very close friends. Um, we didn't go out a lot to things like that. We went to the movies, 
Um, and there were lots and lots of movie theaters. And at least in the beginning, you got the movie and you got the newsreel and you got the cartoons. All for your same 50 cents. Um, and, and there was uh, a lot of time spent uh, as a family around the radio. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the radio, and again, a lot of time uh, listening to m- music. And it would be either the classical or Broadway shows. Um, I remember my parents going to see South Pacific and being disappointed because while they got their tickets as soon as it opened, their tickets were for a year later. And my mom's reaction was by the time they saw the show, it was a bit of a letdown because she felt she knew the show so well already. So, well, that's that's why, like, my dad was like that, where he would listen to records. He would listen to, like, I don't want to hear the music before I see the show. That's part of the entire theatrical experience, as far as I was concerned. But for for my from my dad's perspective, he never saw Phantom because he hated Phantom because <laughs> he hated the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was part of my experience with Hamilton. Is unfortunately, I had listened to it too often that it took a little bit away from the initial, you know, uh, uh, you know, going to it live and, and seeing it. Still a great production. And well, the, old, the only thing that I'll say that, like, I, I had, of course, listened to old musicals from the, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, just from my dad being in theater and, and being so into it. But so that's, that was like the, any new musical, though, like, if I'm not going to be getting it, I've never sought out listening to Hamilton. I've never cared to. If I'm going to see it, if I'm going to see Book of Mormon, you know, I'm a big South Park guy. Uh, if I'm going to see Book of Mormon, I'm not going to get the music before I go see the show. And it's been out for almost a decade, I think, at this point, Book of Mormon has. And I still right. haven't listened to the music, and I still haven't seen it. But let's get back on, on to, to Brooklyn. And, and we, you know, we're mentioning Gil Hodges so much that I, I have to go back to Gil Hodges. And especially right. with baseball revving up. And the fact that he's going to be voted on with the Veterans Committee, this, this, if there's ever a time that we need to be pushing for Gil Hodges uh, when there's no new baseball, uh, you know, even though it's going to be coming back hopefully July 24th, um, I, this is the time to be talking about it. And, and Judy, you've mentioned Gil a bunch, but I'm going to go to Lee first on this one. Uh, Gil Hodges, you, you know, what, what are your first recollections, and especially as a, an early Mets fan? What do you what do you remember about Gil and what you were just what you learned about him as it also pertains to Brooklyn? Well, really, I didn't get to obviously see him play or, or even manage really uh, a sense of that, but it was much more of a historical effort to kind of research and learn about him. I had heard so much through my mother and and just you know uh, you know connecting with the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, and I think what what stood out for me so much was his character. Uh, he was so respected by so many for the person that he was and the, and the teammate that he was, as well as manager. Um, you know, and, and he was also as well a tremendous player. I think one thing that has affected him in terms of his Hall of Fame candidacy is, uh, you know, the unfortunate early age at which he passed. I think he was about 48 years old. Um, and, yeah. and I think that, that to a great degree, uh, affected uh, his getting in. Um, you know, he, he kind of 
lost the momentum. Um, if you look at the, the voting record that he had with Hall of Fame ballots, um, he was ahead of every single person on the ballot every year that he was on the ballot of those who eventually got in. So somehow, remarkably, you can go player by player and identify these people who got in, but yet never eclipsed the amount of votes that he got until, you know, uh, thereafter. So for whatever reason, he's one of those anomalies that, that just escaped the Hall of Fame uh, induction, uh, you know, hopeful that it does happen. But he, he also, one thing that I don't think gets the credit that it should is, while he was a, an average um, offensive player, uh, he had a pretty good postseason record, although one year in the postseason it was a miserable one, and, and unfortunately that of course, was, of course, uh, he never <laughs> he never got the MVP award. He he never got those uh, individual accolades. But uh, some will consider him not only the best defensive uh, player at his position of his era. Some would argue that the best of all time. And as we know, defense is not always the best, the biggest consideration for Hall of Fame. You know, Ozzie Smith, obviously, uh, aberration of that. But I, I think they're they're at, he, he's one that is on the fence. Uh, you could argue either way, um, but there's certainly you know somebody that stands out uh, defensively. And if again you look at the the era that he played, uh, there was a decade there where he led uh, baseball and uh, in. Uh, various offensive categories. So, you know, hopefully the Veterans Committee is able to take a very in-depth uh, look at, at, you know, uh, his consideration. I think he should have been in the first year that he was eligible, if for no other reason than his humanity. And one of you said, referring to what this year is like and what we're going through, and boy, if he doesn't get in this year, it just it hasn't made any sense to me for 40 years, but it certainly will upset me quite a bit. Um, I think that he meant as much to so many people, um, both my generation and generations before me, uh, that to ignore him is a disservice to baseball. Yeah. And I think that the sense may be that it's finally going to come to head, and and both the Hall of Fame and baseball recognizes this. I thought we were going to find out uh, most recently about it, but I guess I was confused. Once I heard that he was going to be considered, I thought it was this past December slash January, but I guess that was completely – Incorrect. <laughs> so uh, that that is uh, this December that we're hoping, or this January for that matter, that we're hoping to hear that he's been voted in. And and I, I think that the idea, the feeling is that you know this is going to be a long time coming, and that he should get that day. Especially it's going to be postponed this year, and uh, obviously and hopefully right. next year. I mean that that that's going to be a big moment if we're able to get together next year uh, to celebrate Gil Hodges. Not just because it's a long time coming with Gil Hodges, but because we literally can't gather right now. Yeah. Right. Well, who do we write to to tell them they need to really move and make sure that he gets in? Well, the, the baseball. I think it's just social media at this point. 
Yeah, it, it's the influence on the writers, and, and specifically that committee. It's, it's the committee that's right. looking at that golden age of, of baseball. I do wonder, I know that Gil Hodges is inducted into the New York Mets Hall of Fame. Um, I am not sure. I would assume that he's inducted into the Dodgers Hall of Fame. I, I'm not for sure on that, but I would have to assume he is. I, yeah, no, I, I, I'd have to assume as well. Um, yeah, I have no idea. I can look that up right Mets. now. Yeah, he, he was with the Mets for such a short period of time, but uh, you know, he, he was a very influential player. And he was, you know, and he was also influential um, as a manager. He just did not bring anything negative that I know of to baseball. And when you compare, oh well, my God, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm today. sorry to interrupt you, but I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, you. But no, I mean, I, I, no, no, sorry, sorry, just real quick, just to throw it out there. I just looked his name up to try to on the Dodgers Hall of Fame members, but I think this might also, you know, come to think it, come to think of it, I might actually need to double. I think this might just be the Dodgers who are in the Hall of Fame. So anyway, continue, Judy. I apologize. Yeah, no, um, I just think that he is, to me, the personification of baseball as a sport and a joyful sport, as opposed to baseball today, where you hear much more about the money, about negotiations, and quite frankly, about the scandals. Oh, sure. It's just so different. Maybe it was all there back then. I'm sure part of it was, and we didn't know about it because we didn't have social media. We barely had telephones. Um, but I think that not to the extent that it is today. Baseball, in my, to my way of thinking, is no longer really, really even a sport. It's a business. Oh, for sure. That, that's a whole other podcast, absolutely. Is mm. Well, that, and that's, that's a whole part of the exploration of the way that they, they intersect and, and how it, it was a crucial moment of the intersection when Walter O'Malley decided to take the last vestige of the city of Brooklyn, not the borough right. of Brooklyn, the city of Brooklyn, yes. out of Brooklyn. And it literally, like, nobody even realized, it, 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 I'm, I'd, I need to obviously find as many articles as possible around the time you know, really talking about what this meant for Brooklyn as a whole uh, in the moment, because obviously, you know, we're only talking about it retrospectively, and a lot of people did so afterwards 20 years later, really. Um, but in the moment, like, you're wondering whether anybody talked about that element, the city element, that oh, yes. Brooklyn Brooklyn had, you know, it, it was its own city, struggled to forget its independence, and the Dodgers existed when they were a city. And then all of a sudden, after the Eagle, you'd mentioned the Eagle earlier, Judy, the Eagle left right. before the Dodgers even won the World Series in 1955. They left in 1955 before the end of that season. So right. th th that, you know, the, the Eagle connected them to their city ship. But, but go ahead, Judy, after, after this last uh, thing that the Dodgers were literally the last vestige of the city of Brooklyn. Well, my only, my main recollection is of really devastation that this could not be happening. Whether there was the same kind of reaction when the Giants left 
the Bronx? I don't think so. No, um, no, I don't think there was a connection like Brooklyn had. <laughs> No, right. and, and that's the thing, too, is the, the Brooklyn connection. And, and, yes, it was Upper Manhattan, but it was, it, it's amazing how close the two stadiums were, which was obviously deliberate the way the Yankees built. But go ahead, Lee. Yeah, I, Sam and I were talking previously that uh, in no way – I have never come across anybody uh, geographically, in, physically in New York or elsewhere, that has ever talked about – oh, we were scorned when the Giants moved to the West Coast, and how could they leave us? And, you know, I, I still have my allegiance, or, or I turned on them. Um, I've never come across somebody. But uh, there's always somebody that talks about, you know, the, the hurt they felt when the Dodgers left for the West Coast. So it was definitely a different dynamic, and I, I, I would think that it goes back to the, the idea that the Brooklyn Dodgers were a neighborhood-invested team. They were, they were part of what Brooklyn was, and the Giants just didn't have that. And I also do remember, I don't know what year it was, but I can remember whatever media we had, the coverage when they first took the wrecking ball to Ebbets Field. It was major, mm. major news. Um, and it opened up the wounds all over again. Right. Yeah. And what's crazy, too, is that that place sat under Dodger control for three years without them playing there. So they had plenty of things happening in terms of not, not plenty of things, but but there would be demolition derbies. There there would be uh, soccer games, what have you, you know, high school, college, all of the above. But uh, one of the accounts, there was somebody there uh, uh, that the Dodgers had left to attend Ebbets Field on a daily basis. And he told the story how some people, it, it was free to walk in. And they, they would just leave the doors open for those, those three years that, that, that Ebbets Field basically ran out its swan song. And they said that, like, sometimes you get people coming in to have lunch, read the newspaper, but they said that one, every day, this one particular man, there, there's no, it's completely anonymous in its recollection of it, that there was this one man who would come there and just stare, just look out from the stand and stare <laughs> like he was, he was watching the past in his mind. It's, ama it's an amazing, yeah, an amazing visual. Yes. That's, yes. that's wild. That's wild. And and was there when you went to the the games uh, back then, Mom? So was there also a lot of activity going on in and around the streets surrounding the stadium? Um, no, you know, you no. Got, it was. Got, if there had been Lee, I don't think my parents would have let me go. Okay. Um, and and when you were at the game, you know, you you've gone to games over the decades. Uh, was it, you know, people dressed up more? It's more formal. The men wore hats and suits. And the women wore well, dresses and hats. Was it a different kind of environment from where today, in recent time, it's much more, um, I don't know, raucous and, and potential of, you know, the, the foul language and, and the physicality? It was. Well, I just went before she, before she comments, let's not even, there, there was all, a lot of foul language back then, too. It's just, you know. You, you know. Yeah, yeah, you're always going to yeah. find that. But, no, it, was, it wasn't raucous. In terms of dress, it was summertime, it was hot, there was no air conditioning. So everybody dressed for comfort first. But I will tell you that when we went to Bo 
close to the Yank to the Mets playing in the Polo Grounds, and then in particular, the first opening day at Chase Stadium. Both my friend Barbara and I were in dresses or suits. I remember the suit I wore, and stockings and heels, and makeup and the whole nine yards. We would never have thought of going dressed any other way. Um, hmm. And I believe the guys wore shirts and ties. Um, yeah. 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 Wow. I don't know if you guys heard the crack of thunder just now, but. Oh boy. Uh, well. Yeah, it, seemed, <laughs> it seemed like just a different kind of uh, environment for and excitement and, and rooting. It just seemed like a, a, a different atmosphere than today. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, the thing that I, uh, and, and the way that I equate it to is because, you know, they've made these, they, they get a bunch of fans, more fans than they got back then. But they're not all focused on the baseball because there's a lot of bells and whistles distracting people to make sure that the people who aren't, who are much more casual with baseball, have other things to pay attention to. But I, I, I think that, and I'm not sure if either of you are Rangers fans. I haven't. I've only been to one Ranger game, but but one of the things, as as a very very casual hockey fan, uh, one of the things that I I was very uh, impressed by and and felt that this must have been what it was like during the the heavy games when you had so many people in the stands at at Ebbets Field that everybody was invested in the hockey game everybody who was sitting in the stands and the majority of the place was filled everybody was looking at the game in hand and, and that's something that I was very impressed with the Ranger fans in Madison Square Garden as a whole the only New York hockey game I've ever been to but, but Judy, if, if you can talk to that, do you think that, that was something that, that that's what was there, is, is that type of atmosphere? It was, it was, you concentrated on the game. That's what everybody was there for. They weren't there to see and be seen. You didn't have these fancy scoreboard billboards with a different, you know, message up there every three minutes. Um... But, Sam, maybe you can help me. I just had this vague recollection of something called the Knothole Club. Does that the Knothole Gang, yeah. Yeah, Happy Felton's Knothole Gang. Happy yes. Felton, that's the name I couldn't think of. Thank and you. I don't have any, they, there's not even enough, there's not even enough uh, uh, that I, I, I need to find even more regarding that whole thing. And, and what's, what's unfortunate, and Lee, you can pick this up afterwards, What's unfortunate is that whoever owns this stuff, and there's somebody out there that owns it, could be making a killing on YouTube because we will watch this stuff. You just throw it up there, the archives of, of, of you. I guess this is probably WIR9 owns all this stuff. Some, somewhere out there, they're right. masters of the knothole game. Yeah, yep. and that, that's, the, that's the enjoyment I get is uh, I very, very often uh, will, you know, drum up on, on the Internet broadcasts, rebroadcasts of these games just to hear the old announcers of Phil Rizzuto and Bill White and, you know, uh, the Vince Scullies, Joe Garagiola, uh, Carey, all these guys. It, it's great to just hear their voices and their descriptions and how they told the story of the game 
I, I enjoy just listening to that as opposed to watching it. But you're right. It's, it's, there's not as much of, uh, of that available as you would think or hope. And the, yeah, today, it, uh, yeah. yeah, and today I don't think the broadcasts have that same feeling. Yeah. Now maybe it's me. I, I, well, I think that the, the, you know, SNY and the Mets uh, do a really excellent job. And, and I was telling you, Lee, this the other day that uh, they, it's the most consistent they've ever been over the course of their 56 year history or uh, 58 year history at this point. Um, it, it's uh, like starting with, with uh, Ralph Kiner, Lindsey Graham, and Bob Murphy. Yes. They have had excellent broadcasters. So as, as the rest of the league has gotten a little bit more vanilla, the Mets have, have kept the characters going. And yeah, shout-out to Howie Rose love. as well. And shout-out to Howie Rose as well on the radio crew. But, you yeah, know, we're, not, we're, no. we're getting... <laughs> no. Go ahead, Judy. No, no. Uh, um, no, I was just going to say that I did listen to the Mets when they were being broadcast on CBS radio because I am, um, I guess, a great news fan and always have it on. Um, but I have not been as enamored of the current uh, baseball broadcasters as I have been with those in the past. Yeah, the, the Ralph Connors, Tim Burrs, Bob Murphy, they were just... Mm-hmm. The voices, the stories, the historical connections, um, they were just unique. And I don't know if it was that there was just more uniqueness amongst them individually or that they're more a product of a formula. Um, I I, I don't know. And and maybe, you know, when we look back 20-plus years from today, maybe we'll we'll appreciate them more. But uh, there was something about just the uniqueness of those announcers who were with their teams for – you know, year after year, became a fabric of the team. Uh, it was just nothing better. It's just a great Yeah, no, you, back then, if you heard a voice and it was one Invisible. of the announcers, you knew immediately. didn't matter what they were doing. They could be doing yeah. a, a, a soap detergent commercial. Yeah. But you <laughs> knew who it was, and you had the immediate connection with the team. Well, and, that's, and I don't that's think that's there anymore. That's just also interesting about some of those commercials that I mean, like the Marv Throneberry, Billy Martin, Miller Lite commercials that I keep coming across. <laughs> like, like, yeah. oh my God, you're like, like, you know, there was just these entertaining personalities that at first, like, seem unsuspecting. You know, Marv Throneberry is just like, I don't know why they wanted me to, you know, like, like that's part of the gimmick of it all is the fact that Marv Throneberry was not the greatest baseball player, but he was very renowned for just him and his personality. And, you know, it was, it was, it was good enough to, to help uh, make light of the, the 1962 team. But, um, right. I, you know, it's, it, it's, it's fascinating. And I'll, I'll end with this, with the broadcaster parts. Uh, Lindsey Graham going to the Mets, those suits, just like nobody, had, like you can only think of Walt Frazier, but, you know, this is a former player too. That has has made the the uh, transition from not only being a Hall of Fame player, but I would go ahead and put Walt and the work he does with my second favorite New York broadcaster, Mike Breen, 
Um, that, that's really, you know, I, I think that those suits are, are just remarkable uh, uh, when looking at some of those photos of, of the, the, the three-headed monster that was Lindsey Graham, Ralph Kiner, and Bob Murphy of the era. Right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Now, it's fantastic. And this is what, honestly, Sam, across your podcast, and and I have your blog uh, up on my screen, it's so fantastic to have somebody who's vested in in bringing this history back and, and, and informing everybody of such what I think is a golden era, not just of baseball, but of Brooklyn, um, it, it just, if, if there were a decade that I've always said, I wish I could grow up in other than the one I did, it would be the fifth. And, and I think your work is, is fantastic. Uh, it's really neat to be talking about every, every aspect of the, you know, the, the music to the culture to the baseball to the, you know, the gentleman that mentioned uh, reference to the corned beef on rye with mayonnaise. Who would do that? <laughs> Uh, uh, oh, it, you're making it, me ill just hearing that. Yeah, it was a great I greatly appreciate that, Lee. And we do have to wrap up the podcast, but, but like we, we like to say on this show, and, and Judy, I'm going to give you the final word, but first I'm going to go uh, to you, Lee, with, with the last word, like we, we like to say, uh, you know, other, other than just you know telling, making me blush, please. Uh, what would be your last word? <laughs> I, I just think that it's important. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of contemporaries who are worried about the state of baseball, and are we are we getting the younger kids to enjoy the game and, and to continue enjoying the game? I think it's so important to look backwards and understand and respect and appreciate the history of baseball. Um, to thus look for aspects of today that are equally as enjoyable and important um, and to pass that history along to future generations. If you find Brooklyn into the the topic of baseball, all the better because Brooklyn is such a unique uh, area that that it's just, uh, I think it's, you know, captivating to many. And you can tell the entire story of America, uh, at least in the 20th century, and the story of baseball and how that ties into America through this one corner of the world, and that's Bedford and Sullivan, shameless plug. But Judy, Judy Kaiser, you are our featured guest today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that I saw that license plate. Lee, thank you for buying it for her. Please, by all means, whatever would be the last thing you would like to say on this particular podcast. Well, the first thing is that I hope my friends who are listening, and I did email it out to several people, um, now believe the story I told about how we connected. <laughs> because I got on our my nightly cocktail Zoom hour with three friends, I got very strange looks when I started recounting this. I am so happy that it happened. And I so appreciate that I had this opportunity, and even more, that I had the opportunity to share it with my son. So I thank you double for that, and I thank you triple for keeping Brooklyn alive. And that's what we're doing here at the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, and we thank all of you for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast over all these years. And as we celebrate America, just have Brooklyn in your, your thoughts. You know, the battle of Brooklyn 
is a humongous reason why we have a country right now. Even though they lost that particular battle, they were able to save enough men to continue the war against Britain and, and the revolution. And uh, I, I urge you all to go down that rabbit hole this July 4th and, and look into the history of the Battle of Brooklyn. So thank you all for listening to the Bedford Sullivan podcast. Judy and Lee uh, of the family of the Kaisers, <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining us today on the Bedford Sullivan podcast. We greatly appreciate much. it. Catch us next week. Take care. Bye-bye. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.